in the, uh, the realm of your dating, back in your dating life, you ever hear people say, he's not my type or she's not my type? Or if you know somebody, they're like, they have a type. And when they break up with somebody and they start dating somebody again, it's just like they have a type. You ever heard that phraseology said? Like, I know, oh, so that's how you are. <laughs> he has a type. You know what I mean? They have to look a certain way. They have to be a certain way. They have to have money, whatever the type is. And you start filling in the dots. Think about it another way. You drive down Highway 12 and you see a red, red, uh, red and white sea. This old place we call Chick-fil-A. And as soon as you see the red and white sea, you know what the experience is on the other side of that sign. You know there's going to be some chicken goodness there. Not on Sunday, right? But you know there's an experience. In fact, I read this this week. There's a study out there that says that Chick-fil-A is not statistically faster than any other fast food place in the drive-thru lane. It's just that we experience it differently. And so it feels smoother and faster. You feel like they're trying to get you the food faster where they actually are or not. Isn't that interesting? So, but you know in your head, because you've been, or if you go to Starbucks, which by the way, Starbucks has made its living off selling an experience, not coffee. You go in there, you know what they look like when you walk in. There's a type. And so your brain, that's how our brains work. They start to fill in the gaps. Our experience, they're based in our experience. I was, I was living in Tupelo a number of years ago, and I ate lunch at a Chinese buffet, and I got food poisoning. It was Thanksgiving week, <laughs> so on Monday, I was sick. My first meal back after food poisoning was Thanksgiving lunch. Believe me, I had seconds, thirds, fourths. It had been like three days. I'm like... Thanksgiving food after three days of night eating? Thank you. I would never go to a Chinese buffet because of that experience. Like, we, our brain starts to fill it in, and it's a survival skill that we have. It's an efficiency. Our brain decides what to keep in our mind and what not to keep in our mind. So it categorizes information in something we call a stereotype or in a type so that we can fill in the blanks. And we know that when we see this logo or we see that we date this type of person, we automatically start making assumptions about how they are or what that experience is like. Now, what's really interesting is there are types in Scripture. And it's different than stereotypes, but it's a similar idea. And that is that there's a pattern in a story in Scripture that fills in the gaps or explains God to us. So it's not just an event to happen because events happen, but there literally is a pattern here that when we see that pattern, it communicates something to us about God and our brain starts to fill in the gaps. We start to understand. And there's characteristics to that. So I'm going to kind of teach you about this a little bit this morning because it helps us understand who God is and how it works, how he works in Scripture. Now, first of all, a scriptural type is grounded in a historical event. Okay, so when people start to try to, it's different from an analogy or it's different from a metaphor when I talk about types. Because some people think, oh, the waves are like my troubles. That's a metaphor. Nothing wrong with that. Okay, but the waves are not a type. They're a metaphor. They're a symbol. A type is a historical event, primarily where one where God intervenes or acts to, do, to save his people. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel. 
Now think about how many times God had to intervene to rescue the people of Israel between Egypt and the promised land. Okay, There's a few types in there. And we're in the middle of a series on Christ in the Old Testament, and types help us see Jesus in the Old Testament. It explains some things about God because we're talking about actual historical events in Scripture that have a a redemptive plan that God did. And it's not so much about every single detail. Like it has, if it was like this, then it has to be like that. They don't, all, all, the, all the micro details of the story don't transfer. You'll see that when I give you an example from Scripture here in a minute. But the general principle is true. Does that make sense? So when you get this event that happens, and this is kind of how God acted, and this is what took place. This is all going to make more sense when I read Scripture, trust me. Tells us something about God. And then the other part of this is it ends up being fulfilled or magnified or expanded in Jesus, which is one of the ways that it points to Jesus in the Old Testament. So God does something to save the people of God in a certain particular historical event. It gets repeated, magnified, or fully expressed in Christ. Are you with me? And so it's a type. This is a way. This, is a, this tells us something about who God is is, and it reveals something about Jesus too. This is Numbers chapter 21, verses 1 through 9. Now, when the Canaanite king, Arad, who lived in, in Hegeb, man, I love Bible names in the Old Testament, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. Then Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If you indeed will give, uh, give this people into our hands, then we will utterly destroy their towns. The Lord listened to the voice of Israel and handed over the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their towns. So the place was called Hormah. From Mount Hor they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. But the people became impatient on the way. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent poisonous serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, speaking against the Lord and against, against you. Pray to the Lord to take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a, poisonous make a poisonous serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten shall look at it and live. So Moses made a serpent of bronze and put it upon the pole, and whenever a serpent bit someone, the person would look at the serpent of bronze and live. What a weird story. It's one of those Old Testament stories, you maybe read it, and if you grew up in church and you read it in Sunday school, you're like, he sent snakes to bite people? That's a weird story. It's a strange story. Well, guess what? It's a type. <laughs> it's a pattern story in Scripture. It's an actual historical event. Remember my criteria here, right? It happened. People, God intervenes. We'll get into that in a second. So the first three verses, they come up against this Canaanite king. He defeats them in battle. This has become a recurring theme for the people of God. They've been traveling to the promised land, and these different nation groups will rise up and attack them. And in this case, he actually carts away captives or whatever. And so the people of God are kind of sick of getting attacked and defeated and carried away. And so they finally break down and go, hey, God, maybe you'd fight for us. 
If we do what we're supposed to, would you help us have some victory here? This is getting, you know, this is Mississippi State against Alabama happening here. Can we fix this? You know, it's been a while since we've had a victory. And God's, God honored their request, honored their commitment, and gave them victory over King Ahab, whatever his name was, <laughs> the Canaanite king, gave him, gave him victory over him. And then in the very next verse, what are the people of God doing after getting victory? Complaining that there's no food and water in a desert. We don't know how long the, the space is between the two verses, but after the victory, once again, they're grumbling to God and to Moses because they don't like the way the things are going. There's no food. Did you bring us out here to die? Which is almost like a thematic cry throughout the Old Testament. They leave, they leave Egypt, and they were slaves, and they were beaten, and they did what they were supposed to do, and all of that kind of stuff, but they were fed, and they were cared for, at least kept alive. They go into the wilderness, there's no food, there's no water, and they actually long for being in captivity. And they complain to Moses, did you bring us out in the desert just to die? Like, you got us out of there, what's the plan? And did you notice that it said, not only is there no food, no water, but this food is miserable. Guess which food they're complaining about when they say this food is miserable? Manna. If you know what manna is, you know it was the food that God was automatically providing the people of Israel while they were in the desert. So they're complaining about not having food, and the food that God has provided them, they say is miserable. They're complaining about that. On the heels of finally being provided a victory because they asked God for a victory and He gave it to them. Because, you know, people of God always just do what God wants and never complain to God about the way things are going. Right? I mean, that cry, why have you brought us out here to die? We probably have a prayer that's similar. Why did you allow this to happen? This would be what it sounded like for us. Because God didn't carry us out into a desert to die, right? But we, have, we pray that kind of prayer all the time. Life turns sideways on us. God, why did you let this happen? God, why won't you provide this? God, why won't you answer my prayer there? And we complain to God about his lack of provision, even though if we really stop and think for a minute, God has provided and provided and provided and provided, and we still grumble. And that's what, the, that's what they're doing. They're complaining. They're acting about it. And they say, well, you pray that God would help us. And God, because he hears their grumbling, actually sends a bunch of poisonous snakes into the camp that starts biting people and killing them. So they got carried out. I know. I was preparing the sermon. I was like, how's that loving God? <laughs> like, you hear about God, and he's the God of the Old Testament. What's happening here? But he's, he's actually allowing, and we'll do this on a whole other sermon, because this, this is a type. This is not a thing. That's not what we're talking about this today. But he allows them to be bitten by poisonous serpents and die. A little bit. Because when Mo, they go back to Moses, what do they do? They repent of their grumbling and their complaining and their lack of faith in God as a result of this consequence. So circumstances get even worse, and they wake up and go, you know what? We were wrong. Will you tell God, ask God to take the snakes away? Now, one of the really interesting things in this story is Moses goes and prays for God to relent and to take the snakes away. God doesn't take the snakes away. Not only did he send them, he doesn't take them away. 
But does he ignore Moses' prayer? He doesn't. He tells Moses, go and cast a bronze snake and lift it on a pole in the middle of camp. And if they will look at this bronze snake, it says poisonous in that translation, this fiery, this bronze serpent up on a pole that looks like the snakes that are biting them is the way I infer that from poisonous, they'll be saved. But he never takes the snakes away. He gives them a way to be saved in the midst of the trial, pain, and consequence. There's our criteria, right? You've got an actual event. It's happened. And then God intervenes and provides a way out of that. He gives them a snake on a pole. Now, this is what I said when I was earlier. I was saying all the details don't carry forward because the, the church sign doesn't have a serpent on it. <laughs> right? We don't, that's not the symbol we have on Sunday morning. So that's one of those details that doesn't carry forward in our type, right? But what does happen? This snake, this serpent is lifted up in the middle of the camp. And if they look at it, they're saved from the bites. You tracking? There's the type. There's the symbol. There's this idea that's happening here. They've complained. There's a consequence. There's pain. There's death. There's suffering all around them. There's hardship all around them. There's sin all around them. And if they look to the pole with the serpent on it, they'll be saved. But the sin is not removed. The evil is not gone. The bad stuff is not gone yet. There's your type. What is your experience of today? You don't have to look on the internet for five minutes to know that the world is not the way it ought to be. That everywhere you turn, there are metaphorical snakes, right? There's pain, there's suffering, there's disease, there's anguish, there's hardship, there's theft, murder, all of that, all the evil that surrounds us, our own sin included. And what is God's solution to the evil that surrounds us? To look to what? Not a serpent, that would be weird. Okay, but to look to Jesus. So you've got Old Testament story. You've got historical event. It's centered around God's action. The weird part is God sets it up. I can't explain that today, but that'd be a whole nother sermon series, right? God sets the consequences for their behavior, then provides the way through it. He doesn't necessarily remove it, but he gives them a way to survive. And there is no question that that found its fulfillment in Jesus. That in that moment, it's the people in the camp who look at a pole. Small group in the wilderness look at a pole of a serpent and go, okay, now the bite's not going to kill me. How much larger, how much greater, how much more expansive is what Jesus did for us on the cross? The type, the pattern, has been expanded and fulfilled in what Jesus did. You with me? So we have a type here. The world is bad. It's evil. There's threats everywhere. There's pain and suffering everywhere. But the only way to be saved in the midst of that is to look to Jesus who is lifted up on a cross. Jesus himself gives us the interpretation of the type. This is John 3, talking to Nicodemus, verses 14 and 15. This is Jesus talking. 
He said, And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. So Jesus, talking to Nicodemus, talking to a religious leader of his day, says, just like Moses did that with the snake and the pole, the weirdness in the wilderness, the Messiah has to be lifted up so that you might be saved. That's Jesus interpreting the type for us. This is not Charlie going, well, that's like a pole. Jesus gave us the fulfillment of it in word and in deed. He looked at it and goes... Just like that happened. So now we have, it's definitely happened, right? Jesus refers to it as something that actually happened. It's not some weird story somebody stuck in there. It happened. God intervened. God rescued and gave a way through. And he says, just like then, it'll happen with me. Now, this is included in the Old Testament. This is included in the book of Numbers. And so whoever wrote the book of Numbers, we think Moses or collaboration of people with Moses that did that, they included this story for a reason. Anytime you read in the Old Testament, you kind of have to go, why would you keep what? <laughs> what is, we've all read the story and went, this is a weird story, right? Why would you keep it? Because here's what happens. There's an original message to that group of people. And that message is what? It's the same message. It's the type. It's the blank we can fill in the dots on. When there's pain... When there's anguish, when there's strife, the only way through is to look to Jesus. In the Old Testament context, it was this event, and the serpent was lifted up, and they looked at it, they were saved. It's a weird story, but it communicates a much deeper truth that's still true for us. God hasn't removed sin and death yet. God hasn't removed evil from the world Keyword here, yet. Right? Anybody ever ask you that question about why does bad things still happen? Why didn't God remove the snakes? What happened when the snakes bit them? They turned back to God. Part of the original meaning in this story is that when people have become aware of their... First of all, when they suffer... Everybody looks to God, right? Please help. But when you become aware of your own sin and inadequacy to survive and to get through, where do you turn? For us, it's Jesus. The people of God in this story ran to Moses. Hey, tell God to fix this. Because Moses was the intermediary, right? He was, their he was the connection to God. He was the prophet. He was the one that talked to God. He was the one they went to. And then Moses prayed and God gave him a direct answer. Go do this weird thing. But he didn't remove the snakes, but he provided a way through. Evil's not gone. Our own sin hangs around and plagues us sometimes, and we try to repent. But when we become aware of it, that's what we're expected to do, is to look to Christ for forgiveness. It's the same response as the people of the Old Testament. Instead of, why have you let all this happen to me, God, so that I'll die? Why did you bring us into the desert so that I'll die? Look to the one who was lifted up the same way the serpent was and live. Sin and evil's not gone, but God provides a way through. And that way is Jesus. 
You can't dodge the snake. You can't stomp on the snake. The snakes are still here. Pain and suffering is still here. But anyone who looks to the one who was lifted up will live. Let's pray. Gracious God, we have before us an old story, a weird story, a story that raises even more questions about why things happen. But what we see in that story is a foretaste of things to come. What we see in that story is a blank fulfilled by you and a picture of a truth that is still true. That the only way to salvation is that the Son of Man must be lifted up in the same way. And so this morning we give thanks that indeed you were lifted up, that you lived, that you died for us, and that you were raised from the dead so that we can look to you. A constant reminder that God is the, the Lord is where our help comes from. We rest in that truth this morning. We worship you and we praise you because of that truth, that love, and that grace that you displayed for us. In Christ's name, amen.